I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to try to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host, and I'm standing here with some dear friends, this tall one, Robert, the dad of these two younger ones, Hannah and Luke. Uh, Robert and I went to school of ministry at Calvary Chapel, uh, Costa Mesa, Chuck Smith, back in the day. It had to have been 10 years ago. Something like that. Something like that. And uh, Robert is a youth pastor at a Calvary Chapel in Van Nuys. That's right. Van Nuys. And his children, Luke and Hannah, right here. And these are two of the four that he has. I just spit in Hannah's eye. Uh, anything you'd like to say to the audience, Luke? May God be with you. Excellent. Did you just bite the microphone, Luke? <laughs> you know, you bring them on. <laughs> and Hannah, is there anything you'd like to say? <laughs> You're making the gag reel. Robert, any words of advice for the audience? Um, God bless you. Keep watching. All right. Thank you, my brother. For sure. Thanks for being on. Thanks, kids. Yep. Love ya. you. You need to unfreeze, Hannah. All right. Well, tonight is the final coverage of the Tulip with brother Matt Slick from Carm and myself. The topic is the P of Tulip, T-U-L-I-P, Perseverance of the Saints. And Matt is going to represent first in his point of perseverance of the saints, and then mine. We'll begin with a prayer, but just let me, well, he'll tell you what perseverance of the saints is, and then I'll follow up with my part. And then we're going to go a little bit extra. I have 10 questions. Matt knows I have 10 questions that I'm going to ask him, and I want to see if he'll give us responses to help us understand Calvinism. So let's pray. Lord, we uh, seek you. Um, we don't understand so much. But we do understand uh, faith, at least to the extent that we look to you and, and believe, and we do understand to some extent love, and we pray that you'll help us to be full of faith and love, and that we will be kind and gentle, and you'll be with us tonight. Be with those who are seeking for freedom, to be emancipated from religion, and to just find life in you. Bless uh, the staff and the volunteers, people who are watching. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Matt Slick, take it away. Okay, now I'd like to present the final letter in T-U-L-I-P, TULIP, Perseverance of the Saints. And what that basically means is that we can't lose our salvation. What I want to do is try and prove that from Scripture. 
Hopefully, I'll be able to do that. So if you've got your Bibles, you might want to check it out with me. And I'll be going to John chapter 6 here pretty soon. Now, let me just say that in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, from the Reformed perspective, what we're saying is that we are eternally secure in Christ. From the foundation of the world, Jesus is the one who was ordained by God the Father and sent by God the Father to redeem us, and he bore our sins. And I, I've already made the case, I hope, for the atoning work that he bore our sin in his body in the cross, 1 Peter 2, 24, and he took care of our sin, and therefore all of our sin having been taken care of means that we must be secure in Christ. Now I'm aware of verses like Hebrews 10, 27, or Hebrews 10, 6 through, uh, 4 through 6, and also uh, you can go to Galatians 3, uh, 3 through, or Galatians 5, 3 through 5, and maybe I'll address those. But here's a principle I want to go through. If we had a set of scriptures, two sets of scriptures, on the same topic, let's say this issue of eternal security, and one set of scriptures can only be interpreted in one way, and another set of scriptures can be interpreted two ways, then this set of scriptures must be interpreted in a manner consistent with the verses that say only one way. So again, if we have verses, two sets, a set that can be interpreted only one way on a topic, and a set that can be interpreted two ways on a topic, then the second set must be interpreted in a manner that's consistent with the first set. It's a principle of biblical interpretation. So what I want to do is go through some, some of the verses that Jesus said. Now, in John 8, 29, Jesus said that he always does the will of the Father. He always does the will of the Father who sent him. This is very important because Jesus always does the will of the Father who sent him, John 8, 29. That means he can never fail to do the will of the Father. If Jesus failed to do the will of the Father, then Jesus would have sinned. But that's impossible. So therefore, it's impossible that Jesus fail to do the will of the Father. Real simple, real simple principle. Let's go to John 6. And we'll start looking here at verse 37. This is what he says. Oops. Excuse me, back up here a little bit. My hand made it go too far. All right. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now, I could teach a lot on these kind of topics because what this is dealing with is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, Jesus emptied himself, became a man, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Now, we have this thing called a covenant, which is a pact or an agreement between two or more parties. And Paul talks about, I believe it was Paul who wrote Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 20, the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, there's debate on what that is, but basically, most theologians that I've, I've read agree that what it's saying is that the Father elected who's to be saved, the Son was to redeem those and that the Holy Spirit applies a redemptive work. Just be basic. So notice what Jesus says in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That means there's a group of people given by the Father to the Son, and they will come to Christ. And he says, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So Jesus is saying that he will never cast out anybody. Get rid of them. Anybody who comes to me, will do so because the Father has given them to the Son. Notice, the Father gave them. Did the Father look in the future to see who's going to pick him? No, that can't work. 
It was not because of God's reactionary foreseen knowledge that he decided to give a certain group to the Son. That's not what was going on. So this is what he says. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is not here to do his own will. Jesus is here to do the will of the Father who sent him. Again, this gets into the nature of the Trinity, which I would love to talk about. We have the economic trinity, we have the ontological trinity, different aspects of what the Trinitarian doctrine really is. A lot of people don't understand this stuff. But nevertheless, Jesus said he came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. Well, what is the will of the Father? He answers the question in verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. What's the will of the Father? That Jesus lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. The will of the Father is that all that the Father has given to the Son, there's a group of people, so picture this, a group of people that the Father has elected and chosen to give to the Son, and Jesus cannot lose them. Because if he does lose them, he's failed to do the will of the Father. If he loses them, Jesus has sinned because it's the will of the Father that Jesus lose none. So can Jesus lose any? No. If he did lose some, that would mean he sinned. It would also mean that the Father made a mistake in trusting the Son with the elect. You see? There's more here. We'll get to some more. I want you to understand this principle. Jesus says that the will of the Father is that all he's given him, he would lose none. He would lose none, but raise it up on the last day. The ones given by the Father to the Son, Jesus will not cast them out. Jesus will not lose any. Now, people will say, but you can lose yourself. <clears throat> okay. If you can lose yourself, then did Jesus lose you? Yes. Now, remember, this is what this Bible says. I'll check this out. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that all he's given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. People say, you can lose yourself. It's, it's not a good, it's not a good uh, response, but I'm going to just deal with it anyway. You can lose yourself. Nowhere in the scripture does that say that. No place. Now, if you can lose yourself, that means you were a believer and then you stop being a believer. But notice what he says in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. That means they're believers who have eternal life. And notice what he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the ones who believe Jesus are given to him by the Father. And Jesus says that they will be resurrected. He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. If they lose themselves, that means they, they were believers whom Jesus says he will raise, whom Jesus says he will not lose. But the will of Jesus, the will of the Father, is that all that's given to the Son will be resurrected, that the ones who believe will be resurrected, and that Jesus will lose none. <clears throat> to lose yourself, which is, doesn't work, simply means that you outsmarted God, or you did what was bad or not good enough in order to lose your salvation, and that Jesus then lost you. Now remember, it's not about your will, it's about the will of God that Jesus is to accomplish. When some people say, <coughs> excuse me, when some people say, look, you can lose yourself, it's up to you, then they, they take the onus, they take the focus off of God's will, God the Father's will, and they put it on themselves. The will of the Father is that Jesus lose none. 
This is about the Father and the Son. It's not about you. It's about the Father and the Son. The one that the Father's given to the Son, Jesus will not lose any. That's the will of the Father. Salvation is about the elect being given to the Son, and Jesus cannot lose any. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he's given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. If you can be lost in any way, shape, or form, then Jesus failed to do the will of the Father, and Jesus has sinned. There is no way around this. You cannot say that, yes, you can lose your salvation, because then it would mean that Jesus failed to do the will of the Father. It would mean that Jesus sinned. And in order for you to lose your salvation, Jesus would have to sin by failing to do what the Father asked him and commissioned him to do. And that's impossible. But people somehow say, well, yes, you can do these things. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you to think that that which has been begun by the Spirit can be perfected by the flesh? Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3. Are you able to keep yourself right with God? I ask people, you believe you can lose your salvation? Oh, yeah, you can. Okay. Could you please tell me then, what must you do to keep it? Because, you know, I'll get my pen or pencil and I'll get a piece of paper and I'll say, look, I need to have a, a couple of lists here because I need to know what we have to do and I also need to know what we can't do because I need to know what these things are because I don't want to do these things if I'm going to lose my salvation. I, I got to make sure, I, you know, I don't do and the do do. So tell me, what do you got to do to keep yourself? Okay, what is this list? I ask them. Well, you got to keep believing. Oh, <clears throat> okay, so you believe out of the exertion of your own will, it's your own effort to believe, yes? That's right. Oh, that's right. I got to believe myself. I have to be the one who continues to believe. Okay. Well, Jesus said that this is the will of the Father. Excuse me, Jesus says, uh, when they said, what must we do to work the works of God? Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe on whom he has sent. So Jesus says that your believing is God's work in you. Why are you taking credit for that which belongs to God? Why are you taking that to yourself? See, I'll tell them, the reason you're doing that is because of this doctrine called total depravity. You know, you want to take credit for yourself, which belongs to God. Do you believe? Yeah, you believe because you've been regenerated and enabled to believe. That's why you're granted the act of believing, Philippians 1.29. Well, then they might say, well, you know, you have to continue to believe. It's up to you and your wisdom. Okay, so it's up to your and your wisdom. So you've got to continue to believe. Believe what? In Jesus. Believe in all these things. Believe everything about Christ, right? Yes, you've got to believe about Jesus. You've got to believe what he says. Believe what he does. And that's your credit. You take the credit for that. Yes, I do. I've had people tell me that. I'll say, well, I'm going to tell you something. I was granted the act of believing, Philippians 1.29. And Jesus says the work of my belief is from God. John 6, 28, 29. So I'm going to say that the reason I even stay in my faith is because of the grace of God. You can take the credit if you want, but I'm not going to. Even my own believing and my ability to continue to believe is by God's grace. Because Jesus said that all that are given to, to him by the Father, he's not going to lose any. But you say you can be lost. You're calling Jesus a liar, and you're accusing him of sin before the Father. You're blaspheming. They'll go to me and they'll say, well, wait a minute. What about Hebrews 6, 4 through 6? Those who've tasted the heavenly gift, they may be made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and then they fall away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Well, the first response I'll say is, so you understand John 6. You understand what it says in John 6, 37 through 40, that the, Jesus can't lose. So now you're trying to counter that with Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. You're trying to say, well, this scripture says this, and you say that. They contradict each other, Matt, so answer it. I say, no, you answer it. There's no contradiction. 
If you're trying to set Scripture against Scripture, then, you know, you're working against God. See, the Bible says, 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us because they never were of us, because if they had been of us, they would have remained. The Bible says, if you're really of God, you will remain. And Jesus says, all that he's been given, he will lose none. So can Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, mean that they were saved? It cannot. We can have, for example, individuals who walked with Jesus, who knew of him, who weren't his disciples, Jews who were around the time of Christ, seeing his miracles, seeing what he had done. They had participated in understanding stuff and even came to a kind of repentance. Because the Bible says, I believe it's 2 Corinthians 10.7 or 7.10, I think it's 10.7. It says there's two kinds of repentance, one that leads to life, one that does not, leads to death. There's a real repentance and a false repentance. Now God grants us repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25. But if we're going to be saying that we can lose our salvation, and the repentance that's being spoken of in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, means that they were saved, well, then we have Jesus losing some, Jesus messing up, and Jesus failing to do the will of the Father. That's a problem. So therefore, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 cannot contradict Jesus, what he said in John 6, 37 through uh, 40. They can very easily be those people who participated in the work of God, in the observation, seen the Holy Spirit perform miracles, seen miracles, had a type of temporary repentance, and have fallen away. There's nothing left for them. That's why it goes on to Hebrews 10.27, or 10.26, if we, or, excuse me, um, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer made a sacrifice for sin. Well, how many of you have ever sinned willingly after you've been saved? Well, then that would mean if we were to take it literally for what it says, man, I'm telling you right there, we can't ever be saved. That's not what's going on. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. The Hebrew people, they weren't Christians. They were Hebrews. Well, some were Christians inside the Hebrew community. But he's writing to the Hebrew community about the Old Testament, about uh, all kinds of stuff. Read uh, Covenant. You can read about the sprinklings going on in, in Hebrews 9, the Old Testament laws. You can read about Melchizedek priesthood. It's Old Testament, it's Old Testament. He's talking mainly to these Jews who understood the law, who understood these issues, and they had a kind of repentance, a kind of understanding, but they never left it. And they were still under that law, had a false repentance. And so what happened is they um, cannot be re renewed again to any kind of repentance at all, simply because there's nothing left. You can't turn. You cannot turn from that. Now I'm going to go to Galatians chapter 5, and I want to bring something up. I want to show you something in Galatians 5. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Galatians 5, and I'll show you something, because it actually says there, there's a phrase, you've fallen from grace. But I want you to look at something. I want to start at verse 1 of chapter 5, and I want to go through something. I want to show you something. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Why did he say that? Circumcision was a representation of being under the law. Now, in Deuteronomy 27, 26, you're obligated to keep the whole law. And Paul quotes that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. You're under obligation to keep that whole law if you want to be circumcised. You want to keep yourself right by doing one thing in the law, then you're guilty and you're obligated to hold all of that law in place. And if you don't, you're cursed. That's what he says in Galatians 3.10. Now, believing and continuing to believe is a requirement 
of the law. Go to Exodus 20. You are obligated to believe in the true and living God. Just read the Ten Commandments. Have no other God before me. You're told to believe in Him. Belief is a requirement of the law. And if someone says, I'm under the obligation to continue to believe by my effort, they're actually saying they're still under that law. But if you go to, Genesis, uh, to Romans 7, 4, we who have died are freed from the law. And we get some more complicated theology. We won't get into that now. Don't have time. But he's talking about this issue of circumcision, how people want to say, you need to be circumcised in order to be right with God. I, Paul, verse 2, said, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. Notice what he says here. Severed from Christ. What's he talking about? Circumcision. Severed. Circumcision. Severed. Do you get what he's talking about? What did you cut it off? That's what he's saying. You've been severed. Notice the pun in the issue of circumcision. He says, you have fallen, you've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. They're seeking to be justified by law. Justification is a legal standing before God. Justification means that you are legally right before God. This is accomplished by faith, Romans 5.1. Romans 3.28 says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. To the one who does... Uh, do, but uh, says, uh, the one who does not work but believes, his faith is reckoned as righteousness, Romans 4, 5. So justification, the legal declaration of righteousness, is by faith alone in Christ alone. Notice this. Notice what it says here. You are seeking to be justified by law. Is anybody a Christian, a believer, who's seeking to be justified by law? No. Are they Christians? No. Have they been Christians? No, you can't be a Christian if you're seeking to be justified by the law. You can't be a Christian if you're seeking to be made right before God by keeping the law. Those aren't Christians. Christians are those who are saved by faith, not by the law. Galatians 3.24 says the law leads us to Christ. And again, Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You know Ephesians 2.8 and 9. But by grace through faith you've been saved, not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. So a true Christian knows we trust in Christ, we believe in Christ, not in our works, and that's why we're Christians. We believe this stuff. So anyone who's seeking to be justified by the law is not a Christian and hasn't been one. It's not talking about believers here. He's talking about the Judaizers, the people who have exemplified, who have seen understood, experienced a lot of what God has offered in the person of Christ. You've been severed from Christ, you're seeking to be justified by the law. He's speaking very, very strong language to these Jews. You've fallen from grace, fallen from that understanding, fallen from the kindness, fallen from the work of Christ, that only sacrifice by which you can be saved. You've fallen from that. There's nothing left for you. This is what he's saying to them. He's bringing condemnation upon the Jews who are seeking to be made right by their own efforts. Now I ask you again, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, what must you do to keep it? What's the list? I dare you. Take a piece of paper. Write down the things you've got to do. And write down the things you can't do. Write down those things you've got to do. I've got to believe. I have to read my Bible. I've got to go to church. Whatever it might be. I've got to be honest. I can't lie. I can't commit adultery. You know, I can't murder. I can't steal. Because if I do those things, I lose my salvation. Or I've got to worry about, you know, if I come to unbelief, how can you come to unbelief? You've been regenerated by God. I don't understand that. I got to keep it. So then you're back under the law. 
You're back under that law then, aren't you? But the Bible says, the Bible says that we who have died in Christ have died to the law. What you need to do is read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Those who are, have died, talks about marriage, that a man and a woman are married, and when one of them dies, the other one's free, free from the law, and is free to be able to, to marry somebody else. In Romans 7, 4, excuse me, the one who has died is free from the law. Now, Galatians 6, excuse me, Romans 6, 6 says that we have been crucified with Christ, and Romans 6, 8 says we've died with him, and Romans 6, 2 says we have died, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says we have died with Christ, in Christ, and things like that. That means we've died to the law. That means there is no law for us to have to keep in order to be saved. That means there is no list. There can't be a list. It cannot be that you're maintaining your salvation by your own faith, by your own effort, by anything. Now, it does not mean that it's okay to go out and sin. Because Paul says, for example, in, in, uh, in Romans 6, 1 and 2, How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? We don't go out and sin. We're born again. We're changed. This is not a license to sin. I believe what I'm talking about, and I struggle with my sin, and I seek to repent of it on a regular basis. I don't want it because I'm changed, because the Lord's in me, because I'm convicted of my sin. Those who say eternal security is a license to sin, you just don't know what you're talking about, and you're negating the whole idea of regeneration and the indwelling of God because that comes along with this whole issue of faith. They are concomitant. Look that up. If, again, you teach that you must maintain your position with God through your efforts of belief, your efforts of not doing bad, your efforts of kind of doing good, then you are back under the law, and it could be applying to you. You have fallen from grace, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. The law says, love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6, 5, and Jesus quoted that in Matthew twenty two thirty seven. And in Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus quoted that in Matthew twenty two thirty nine. So when Jesus quoted these things and said, these are the two greatest commandments, he was quoting the Old Testament law. Are you going to have to say that I've got to love God and love my neighbor, and this expression of love is what keeps me saved? Then you're back under the law, and you are in trouble. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, Galatians 3.28 says. Apart from loving God and apart from loving your neighbor. The justification that we have is apart from the works of the law. This is why it makes sense to say God regenerates us, He has elected us, He's atoned for us, He changes us, and we believe because of His work. And that's why we love God. That is why we love our neighbor. Because of the regeneration of God is that He's worked in us. Not that we're under the obligation of the law to love him and the obligation of the law to love our neighbor in order to be right with God or maintain our position with God. Don't think like a Mormon. Don't think like a Jehovah's Witness. Don't think like a Muslim. Don't think like someone who says, I've got to keep myself right with God through my own faithfulness, through any, any effort of my own self. The reason that we Christians are saved is because of the grace of God. Grace, the unmerited favor, not only to bring us into the kingdom, to keep us in that kingdom. Now, again, let me go back to what Jesus said. He said, I've come down from heaven, John 6, 39, 38, 39. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all he's given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. 
If Jesus has paid for all of our sins, and as I've tried to present the issue of limited atonement, that Jesus actually bore our sin and actually canceled the sin debt, and he did it for his people whom he has called. As he says in Colossians 2.14, canceled out the certificate of debt, having nailed to the cross. We are crucified with Christ. When were you crucified with Christ if you're a true believer? Not when you believe, when he was crucified. He represented you. You died with him. He infallibly brings you into the faith. If this is the case, he cannot lose you. Do you think God makes a mistake? That he brings you into the kingdom, he regenerates you so that you can lose it? Then you're accusing Jesus of failure. That he failed to do the will of the Father. It can't be that Jesus fails. It cannot be that the Father made a mistake trusting you to Christ on that day of redemption, on the day of the cross, when he calls you eternally and manifested that calling to you when you're born again. I rest my case in the issue of what Jesus has said. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. This is what he says in John 10, 27, 28. John 3, 16, God loved the world and gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. That's what Jesus says. Jesus equates belief in him with never perishing, with eternal life. And he says he can't lose any. Don't accuse him of sin. Don't accuse Jesus of failing to do the will of the Father. Don't accuse him of being less empowered than you, that you can somehow undo the will of God, that you can somehow undo the blood of Christ himself and the atoning sacrifice and his indwelling presence in you because you and your lack of wisdom don't believe or decide to leave or whatever. Remember 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they never were of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained. Now, I just remembered something before I close. Why would Jesus, why would Paul give generic warnings? Be careful lest you fall away. That's what you do when you're speaking to large groups and you don't know which individual is or is not a believer. You be careful that you don't have a false repentance, that you're close, like Hebrews 6 would say. You're close to the faith and you fall away from that. That's what would happen in that context. You will never find this spoken of of individuals. Individuals are saved. Individuals are atoned for. Chosen vessels, Acts 9.15. You will find that God does not make mistakes. He's atoned for us. We are eternally secure in Christ because Jesus says the will of the Father is that he lose none and he always does the will of the Father, John 8.29. And otherwise, if he has failed and he has lost some, anybody can lose their salvation, then that means Jesus has sinned. He's failed to do the will of the Father. And it also brings condemnation upon the Father who failed in his judgment to trust the chosen ones to the Son for safekeeping. Be careful of what you accuse God in your own sovereignty, your own power, and your own ability to undo what you think is the grace of God. Be careful. Be resting and secure in Christ and his work forever. Amen and amen. And amen. That was Brother Matt Slick, uh, a proponent of TULIP with the P. And now you'll hear my, not my response to Matt, but just why I do not accept perseverance of the saints. And uh, Matt does a good job. We'll see how I did. Here we go. My brother Matt has made some excellent points. Uh, the emphasis on Jesus, his work, his love, 
God reaching, all of these things mean so much, and I agree with them completely uh, in those areas. Uh, if TULIP is true, then once saved, always saved is absolutely true. God, if he gets in and he elects, and Jesus died for those elect, and then it's impossible for that group to be lost. We have to agree with that. But if we had any ability to seek him, if we're not totally depraved, it all comes back to total depravity. If we are not totally depraved, and we have the choice to open the door or not, we have the ability to hear or not, then once saved, always saved is a misnomer. And let me tell you something. There is nothing more comforting to a Christian than the idea of once saved, always saved. And when I talk against it, understand something. I am not saying you ever lose your salvation because you've sinned, because you've wavered in faith, because you've walked away from God for a long period of time or a short one, because you have a pernicious sin that you keep returning to. We are not talking about that. I am talking about if God grants us from the beginning the ability to respond to him, he grants us the freedom to walk from him. That is it. We see a coercion and an oppression in the Calvinistic approach to God. He does it. Sovereignty, a word that was created by Calvin into scripture. Sovereignty. But if God is on the other side and he says, I am calling, you have the right, then once saved, always saved is problematic. The Calvinists believe that once quickened by God's efficacious grace, the regenerated believer can never walk away. We use fall, lose. I don't like those. I want to talk about walking away. I want to talk about turning purposely once you have tasted. I'm going to give you some passages, and if there, you cannot refute them. You can't. I heard a lot of logic coming out in reasoning why you can't lose your salvation. A lot of logic. But let me tell you something. The Word of God slams the door shut on the idea. The Westminster Confession says, They whom God has accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein till the end and be eternally saved, end quote. We can summarize that as once saved, always saved. The arguments are abundant for and against the position, and I think they can only really be solved by a really sound understanding of Scripture and not, not looking at anything but just what it says. We don't need to use our reason in this. Let's see what it says. I see two questions rising out of this position of once saved, always saved. If I prove once saved, always saved is not correct, then you have to toss Calvinism out the window. Because if I can show you Scripture proves that people have the right to walk, then all this stuff about God doing, doing, doing is a fail. And so on the two 
bookends of the five-point Calvinism, total depravity and perseverance of the saints, we stand strongest, I stand strongest in showing scripture does not support those. The middle stuff, except limited atonement, the middle stuff we can talk about, there's a lot there. But those two end pieces are what we're going to discuss. The first question we have to know is, when is salvation actually granted? This is going to undermine people. We're not going to get popular by me talking about this. And the second is, if a person has received the invitation into the kingdom, can they walk away from it? The Calvinist seems to suggest, like most Protestants, that the moment a person believes is the moment that they are saved. And then they suggest that that status can never be turned from. In Calvinism, this final point seals the deal of the five points. Think about it. If man is totally incapable of choosing God, then God unconditionally elects him to be his. Then Jesus atoned for them specifically because God elected them alone. And this election is irresistible or totally effective in granting them a new heart and saving them on the spot. Then the idea of once saved, always saved is absolutely rational. Makes sense. Since God has done everything in the process, he's not going to fail in the final phase. It's sort of like a computer company saying, this computer will never break down because God has built it completely. Okay? But if, and to me it's not an if, but if human beings had any hand at all in the step, for instance, if they are not totally incapable and have the ability to receive or reject, open the door or close, then once saved, always saved, doesn't hold nearly as much water. And we would have to allow for the fact that an individual has the right, I say that that way, they have the right to detach from the vine and walk away. That's why scripture talks about it. Notice I did not say lose. I said they have the right, sort of like Satan walking from God. The ability is always there. He is a God of liberty and freedom. Satan is a God of control and coercion. This God of liberty and freedom, he allows anyone, including Satan in his presence, to walk. I am personally convinced that the real problem with once saved, always saved, first lies in the position of a faulty presupposition resting in the heart of Protestant viewers. This faulty presupposition is the idea that salvation is seen as a past occurrence in the lives of people who have experienced it rather than a promise that will be fulfilled to those who choose to abide in the vine with Christ by faith. It's quite common in Protestant circles for people to say, when were you saved? I was saved on June 7th, 1989 at four o'clock in the morning. Admittedly, and in the spirit of scriptural paradoxes that God allows, there are places in the New Testament that speak of salvation in a past tense. I don't deny that. This paradox is there. I don't deny it. But in my estimation, we have a hundred times more passages. A hundred times more. And this is the thing. We're not selectively here. Let's balance it. That clearly say salvation is actually announced in this life by the Spirit, but awarded when the life is over. It's announced now, invitation received, but it's awarded when life is over. So it's not so much the question of, when were you saved that that's wrong, but it probably should be rephrased to ask, when did you receive your invitation to the kingdom? Now, I know that's unsettling. We want certainty, but it's an invitation to the kingdom. Peter spoke of the coming of salvation. 
in a future tense when he said in 1 Peter 1, 5, through faith you are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He was talking about Jesus' second coming there. But he's saying that was the, that was the end of it right there. Later through verse 7 and 9, he said, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perish, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and glory and honor at the appearing of Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. It's after that period. It is after the trial of your faith being more precious than gold. It is not awarded. It's just, it's just earnestly given. You've been given the invitation. You have it in your pocket. Have you been saved? I've been invited into the kingdom. I'm part of the kingdom now. When I die, I'm going to the kingdom. That's how it is. When we say this idea of past tense, I was saved in, it doesn't coincide with scripture. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.22, now he which established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who has also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. You know what an earnest deposit is? That's what that is. You are, the Spirit says you are Christ. You rejoice in the salvation. You've been given the earnest of that, but that is not the end of the deal. That is not it. And so it's a misnomer to talk about once saved, always saved in the past tense. We might liken the anointing and earnest of the Spirit to a golden invitation made good by continued faith in the Son. That is the commandment. 1 John 3, 23. This is His commandment. To believe and to love. Stop believing. Stop loving. You're breaking one commandment and you're detaching from the vine. It's simple as that. Paul said in Philippians, if by any means I might attain the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained. Talking about resurrection, he is talking about attaining it later. He says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. It is a future deal. We're in it by faith now. You leave faith, you've walked from salvation. Earlier in... Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul says, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul said, I'm keeping myself into subjection unless I myself be a castaway. The logic of once saved, always saved is really, really comforting. But it has to be taught in congruence with scripture, which is abide in the vine. Stay in the faith, which comes by hearing. That's why we preach the word, to reinforce people and keep them in the faith. Detach, no faith. It's not like a single event. It's not like a, a many time event where I detach and I come back, I detach. When someone turns, they've turned. That's it. And they have that right by God to say, I am turning from what I knew. I'm gonna prove it to you when I get to the scriptures in just a second. So instead of saying once saved, always saved, maybe say once invited, always invited. Because God is constantly inviting amidst our ups and downs of faith and wonderment. He's always inviting. He's outside honking. He's knocking on the door. Open it back up. It's never letting you go. But to say once saved, always saved, that's just a misnomer. Again, the invitation always received by grace through faith is always here. 
for the Christian's final salvation is conditioned upon continuing in the way of faith and bringing forth the fruit of Christian living, which is love. Now people can say, well, God won't let you out of your faith. You want to bet? There is no getting around this matter when Calvin constructed this in his attempt to synthesize scripture and provide a concrete formula to hide ourselves in. The tenuous nature of our relationship with God keeps us pursuing him and humble before him. The once saved, always saved adds to that characteristic I mentioned two weeks ago or three weeks ago of Calvinism producing pride. When you realize you need to stay in faith, that pride goes down a long, long way. And you are willing to subject yourself and you're willing to quickly see that you have made errors and you need to change and you need to alter and you need to love more and have more faith in the process as we walk through life. To say, I've been elected, I have been saved, once saved, always saved. You can arrogantly say, I'm God's. Come at me, baby. Well, I was a little bit tough there, but so what, you know? I was a little bit opinionated, but God saved. I mean, there's no humility that comes with it. God has purposely kept us in attention. Now, don't think it's our power that's saving us. It's Christ in us. Christ in us. Christ in you. But we can say, Christ, no more. Okay? I'm going to go right to the passages. No, you know, let me just say this. Jesus said very plainly, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And then he goes on and says, and those who are branches, that means they started in Christ, they've grown in Christ, they've been nourished by the vine, they've become a mature Christian in Christ. If they don't produce fruit, they will be cut off, cast, and burned. That's what he says. You abide in him by faith, and you're nourished by him and produce fruit, or you are cut off. That's what scripture says. That's what Jesus said. I didn't say it. In Colossians 1.22, Paul tells the Colossians that they were reconciled by Christ, holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. But listen carefully to the verse after. If. You continue in your faith. Why does he add that? Why is he saying it? Established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. The logic of Calvinism ignores this. It does this whole trip about saying, God is this and this and this and this and this, and you'll never, and yet it ignores the fact that scripture is always warning, stay in the faith, almost without exception and exceptions never make a good rule, the promises of Scripture are always conditioned upon the perseverance of faith in Christ. Someone would say, well, God will never let you go of faith. I'm going to give you the Scriptures. We can't take singular passages like John 10, 27, 28 and construct the doctrine while ignoring the rest of Scripture. John 10, 27, 28 says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Calvinists and other believers in eternal security argue that real apostasy of a born-again person is impossible because Christ said that his sheep shall never perish. I think what Christ said is absolutely true. His true sheep never will perish. They never will, because they will abide in faith. 
God makes promises, but most are completely conditioned upon abiding in the vine. To suggest that this faith is distributed by God outside of the compliance and acceptance of man ignores tens of dozens, tens of dozens of if conditions and stories in Scripture. They are all through there. The promises are to be understood in light of conditions, even if those uh, conditions are not manifestly made present. There's far too many texts that support the notion that continued faith is requisite for an invitation to remain valid after this life. This leads to the second question produced by once saved, always saved, presuppositional teaching. Can a person who has received the invitation to the kingdom, can a branch that has been in the vine of Christ, growing in Christ to becoming a branch, can someone who has actually tasted what God offers them willfully turn from the invitation that is offered? Absolutely. The passages that warn Christians against falling away or apostasy give no end of trouble to the Calvinists. No amount of verse spin can change these passages. And so let me read them to you. And we'll end with these. Ready? John 15, 2. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges that it may bring forth more fruit. Read John 15 about the vine and the branches. Remember, he says branches are all in him. That means they have been in the relationship, in Christ, growing. And he says, if you don't produce the fruit, you're cut off and burned. That's not once saved, always saved. Paul says in Colossians 1.22, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked words, yet have now been reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable in his sight if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Peter says of those who have forgotten that they were purged of their old sins, in 2 Peter 1.8 says this, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see far off, listen, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Matt has said, God comes in, he elects us, the sin has been completely removed. And Peter says, these people are forgetting that they were purged of their old sins. Just wait. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith. How do you depart from something unless you have it? Giving to, uh, to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Remember, if once saved, always saved doesn't hold, then God has failed to do what he has been doing all along in the Calvinistic tulip, and we have a complete breach of the system. In the next chapter, Paul says, speaking of widows, 1 Timothy 5.11, But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. How, how did they do that? They get better. Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope till the end. 
Six verses later, he says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief, not of sin. He doesn't say evil heart of adultery, evil of this, or evil of fornication. He says, an e- if you're, be, Take heed, if you're an evil heart of unbelief, in departing, means you are with him from the living God, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This is not preached more and more because of the Calvinistic system. Why would you preach against the hardening of sin and the hardening of a heart if once saved, always saved? If everybody in the room is elect, if God has already just pre-called them and they are done and it's over. But if there's that tenuous relationship where we have the ability to open the door to him, and we have the ability to walk from him if we want because he's a God of liberty, that is biblically sound. It's not being taught now. That's a travesty. It's not to put us in bondage. I do not fear for my salvation because I stay in faith. I do not stay in my own righteousness. That is impossible. But I stay in faith by virtue of his spirit and my willingness to listen to him. You can say, well, that's making yourself God. It's not making myself God. It's me grateful for a gift that's out there and I can grab it and take it. That's openness. That's liberty. Listen to Hebrews three chapters later. If they fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify themselves, the son of God afresh and put him to open shame. So he says here, listen, take heed unless the heart of unbelief comes in And then three chapters later, he talks about this falling away to renew them again to repentance. You're not going to be able to. How do you fall away? Matt says there's no falling away. Why are they talking about falling away? Hebrews, two more. These are the killers. 10, 26, 29. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Did you hear that? I'm not reading, making this up. Did Matt quote that scripture? Do Calvinists quote it? For if we willfully sin after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for a judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He dropped down to verse 29. How much sore punishment suppose ye shall be thought worthy who is trodden underfoot the Son of God. That means you have that ability to trodden him underfoot. And have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite the spirit of grace. A Calvinist cannot answer this. They can spin it, but they cannot give a sufficient answer to this, these numerous passages. Let me conclude from Peter. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. Listen to this closely. This is for my brother Nathan. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, The latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, known the way of righteousness, than after they had known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. That's the word of God. You can't tell me 
that at that time in the apostolic church, that it was impossible for those who had come to faith, who had escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and got entangled therein and were overcome, that they were still saved. Peter says, gone. Bye-bye, fathead. Now, I don't preach misery and woe. I preach hope. But we don't do anyone a service when we lead them down a false trail of that Christianity is about the singular experience that we've been saved. If you read William James' uh, 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 Varieties of uh, Religious Verities or something like that, I can't remember the title, he talks about all, everybody has born-again experiences. The Buddhists, the Muslims, they're all having born-again experiences. They have these revolutionary things that change their life. People, people go to 12-step uh, programs and are born again in the 12-step program and get new life, and they completely change by that. The question is, has Christ done it? When Christ does it, he never lets you go. He's there. He's present. He keeps you. But he allows you the right to turn from him. That's a God of freedom. That's not a despot. These passages absolutely shut the door on once saved, always saved. It's not true. To even say it, perseverance of the saints, it's a lie. Because the scriptures show that people can receive the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, escape the pollutions of the world, and be overcome. And then they have known the way of righteousness, but they've turned from it. Friends, the five-point Calvinist loses the entire battle on the first argument and on the last argument. Total depravity and once saved, always saved. The middle stuff is, is debatable, except for limited atonement, in my opinion, but still, we could debate it. Middle stuff, I agree with mostly what Matt says. Total depravity, Calvin's imagination coming up with that in lieu of Scripture and once saved, always saved, bringing this in, this false hope to people to not stay in the tension that God gives us to stay in, to constantly rely on him. Don't get me wrong. We are not in constant peril. Uh, we have been delivered, and he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. I do not preach that you're in peril. All I preach is we need to stay in faith. We need to let the love of God course through us and let it produce fruits of love. Knowledge means nothing. It means nothing. Knowledge puffs up, Scripture says, but charity. We can know all things and have not love. Knowledge produces pride. It produces an arrogance. It produces answers where there are none. It speaks for God when he hasn't spoken. It makes systems in order for people to feel comfortable. God is bringing us through. He has saved us. He will sa he's given us the earnest. He said, you're there. Just now abide in the vine. And so we, we stay together and we hear the word and we enforce each other with love and we, it, we encourage each other through scripture and we take all of it as a whole. He equips us. He protects us. He walks with us. He does not let us go due to our failures, due to our sin, our moments of faithlessness, but like his entire plan of salvation, God, who is love and as such adores liberty and freedom, will allow for any person to abandon the faith. For the world, making apostasy entirely possible for genuine Christians who have tasted the fruit of Christ at one time in their life. And if people don't like that, 
and they don't want to be responsible for that, I don't care. It's what the Bible says. Okay, uh, before we go to Matt Slick, he's on the phone with us. We're going to take, we're going to do 10 questions with him that I have gotten in emails and different things and run through those uh, quickly. I think it'll be good because we can kind of flush this out in the end and, and call it a day. We want to really quickly, Seth and I are going to walk you through the website. First of all, bring it up, Seth. I want you to know that you can get any of the episodes. They're archived here. You see how he's got it? You have 2015 and there's all the episodes for 15 alone. Hour long, you can go, he's actually going all the way through 13, 12, 11, uh, 400, almost 500 hour long shows. All you got to do is click on episodes on the website and it will take you and you can rewatch whatever category, whatever thing you want to watch there. Some people don't realize that, so we wanted to point that out. Also, store. Uh, if you click on that one, then all of our beautiful products pop up. You got. You can just scroll down through, you push add through cart, and, uh, and uh, t-shirts, CDs, books, bump air, stickers, and again, if you cannot afford anything uh, uh, in the book department, or the, C the CDs, the music CDs, CDs or books, write us an email. Don't go on that. Write us an email and say, I can't afford it, and we send it to you free. We've done that for 10 years. We have never rejected anybody who cannot afford the products uh, in the books and the CDs. So just tell us and we'll send it out to you. All right, Brother Matt, is he on the line? Hold on. Well, I, I don't know if he can hear me. Oh, there he is. Matt, can you hear me? I can. Okay, I don't see you, but uh, maybe the audience does. Uh, can I go with question number one? Can you hear me? You're a heavy breather. Can you hear me? Matt? <laughs> what do you think, Seth? Testing Matt. Matt, slick. Matt, can you hear me? Yes, now you hear me. Okay, I'm going to give you the first question. You ready? Sure. I, this uh, came in from uh, email. Uh, no, this was a question somebody asked me on Sunday. Matthew 7, 7 through 8, Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be open. How do you respond to this teaching in light of total depravity? In other words, why the suggestion by Jesus if it is God who enables and prompts someone to ask and seek? If you ask, it'll be given you. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, it'll be opened. What is going on here is that he's talking about God not giving us something opposite of what we ask for, because it goes on. What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will not give him a stone, or asks for a fish, will give him a snake? And the reason is, is because in uh, the Sea of Galilee, there's a snake, or excuse me, a fish that's long and looks like a snake, and their bread that they would make often looked like a stone. So God's not going to fake you out. Ask it to be given to you. Now, this is also in the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount. He's giving a generic moral behavior uh, lesson of how people are to behave. 
So if they ask, they seek, they find, they're going to find the truth. Okay, not a problem. God's not going to fake them out and get something contrary to what they ask. But but you understand the question, right? That I yeah. mean, you don't. That he's saying, ask, seek, knock. If you do, you'll get. And it's it's almost tacitly inferred that a person has the ability to say, okay, God, hey, and he will respond. And but but total depravity seems to say that's impossible. So what am well, I this missing? This is about me? total depravity. This is about the Jews sitting on the hillside listening to Jesus speak to them to the covenant people of Israel. Okay, were they totally depraved before God touched them or no? Well, we don't know who individuals were or weren't. Were, or weren't. You know, total depravity is found in other places in Scripture, you know, where Jesus says the heart's desperately wicked, deceitful, and first, uh, or actually that's uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. But Jesus said, or Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural man cannot receive the things of God. Yeah. What he's doing there, he's talking covenantally to the people of Israel. It's not an issue of doctrinal nature of human, human uh, condition. I, I don't, I mean, I'm not, I'm really not trying to be... Uh obtuse here, but I don't understand. I mean, Jesus himself, he gives a really simple principle there, and it seems like we read it today, supposedly, and we read it in the Bible, and we say, okay, you know, and, so we, and, and, and it just seems so clear and simple, but it's okay. I, you've given your answer. Let me try it again. Let me try it again and help out. Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul the Apostle says, no one seeks for God. If anyone seeks for God, it's because God has called them to himself. That would be the doctrinal response. That's what the text is saying. This, uh, the uh, Beatitudes, is written to the covenantal community of Israel. It's not a doctrinal dissertation on total depravity. It's not meant for that. It's not an address to the human nature. It's okay, just I realize that. People of Israel, you have the ability to do things with your children. It's not talking about people coming from non-belief to belief. They're already believers. Okay, so whoever he was talking to, you're saying they were already believers. That's the That's, that's the answer. That's what it says. Okay, no, they're, I'm saying... They're, they're the Jews I'm not, I'm not arguing with you. I'm, I'm saying that's what you're saying, is that who Jesus was saying this to were already believers, and so therefore to knock and, and ask would be normal because they have the Spirit in them. That's what you're saying. I didn't say they... Okay. They are already members of the covenant community. That's what I, of Israel. Okay. Jesus is speaking covenantally to the people of Israel. Right. That's the Sermon on the Mount in the context. This is not a, a comment on the condition of the unbeliever. Okay. We have other statements that are conditions of the unbeliever. Okay. And those are very clear. All right. Next one. We received an email. This is point two from Bob, a longtime viewer. It says, Matt, I've heard you say that Mormons worship the wrong Jesus and God. However, after reading some of the teachings of Calvin, I'm wondering what book you are reading to get the concepts of God that you believe about Jesus and God. For example, and I, I know you have an answer for this, but Calvin taught that God tricks some of the same people that he dooms into hell that he loves them. Okay, wait, wait, wait. wait. First of all, it's an accusation, and it's an, it's an insulting accusation. Now... It's a multifaceted question, so which aspect of it am I supposed to address at, at a time? The reason the Mormon God is not true is because of what the issue is of ontology, the nature and the essence of something. Ooh. In the, yeah, in the doctrine of the Trinity, there's only one God in all existence, in all place, in all time. Mm. In Mormonism, there's many gods, and God is not a trinity. He's a triad. 
If we have differences in the essence and definition of what God is, don't make a mistake, and a lot of people do this. They make a huge mistake when they say, the Calvinist interprets the action of God this way, so therefore it's a false God. Okay. But the, the, it's just an interpretation of action. You see, the action that we look at, we look at God predestining. I've had people say, no, God doesn't predestine anybody. I don't serve your God, Matt. And I say, well, wait a minute. The Bible says he predestines. And then you disagree and you say it's a different God. Are you raising a doctrine of predestination as a defining attribute of God's essence? Because that's a mistake that they're making. Okay. So uh, he has a follow-up question, which I'll ask in a second. But I want to ask you a question about the ontology the uh, ontological understanding of God versus the uh, epistemological understanding of God, Matt. Do you perfectly understand the ontological God? When you say perfectly, I have to answer no. Okay, so then you have some error in your belief about who God is, ontologically. If I don't know if it's perfectly understanding, then I don't know if I have error. So what are you answering? Do you know him perfectly ontologically or not? Well, when you say know something ontologically, that's a philosophically difficult question to answer yeah. because ontologically, it deals, ontos, ontos deals with the essence and nature of someone. Yeah. If I were to say, do I know the, that dog over there ontologically by nature, it's basically a non sequitur. Okay, well, all right, well, this is why I say it, Matt. You just said the Mormons, their problem with God is ontologically, they do not accept how Christians view God ontologically. So you're, what you're saying there, in my opinion, says we have him down perfectly. No, I, I didn't say that. Okay, I know Did you didn't say that because you don't. And so if a Mormon doesn't have him down perfectly and you don't okay. have him down perfectly, right. what's the problem? I'll tell you what. The problem is that ontologically, the essence and nature of their God is that he's a created being who became and changes nature and became a, a God. We know from the Bible in Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. When you say perfect knowledge, I never said perfect knowledge. We have sufficient knowledge. Okay. We have sufficient knowledge out of the Bible on who God is. We have sufficient knowledge out of the Mormon theology to know what their version of, version of God is, and we know that they both cannot be true. Okay, They're well, hold on, one, hold on one second. Matt, I ontologically understood Jesus and God in the way that I understood him as a Latter-day Saint when I was born again, when God reached down and took my ways and changed my heart in a radical way that altered the course of my entire life. And I clung, clung to that ontological makeup for four years plus. Still, <clears throat> I wonder about some of the Christian views ontologically. Since no, you don't have a complete problem. understanding, and maybe if you don't have a complete understanding, then how on earth could you suggest other people, because they differ from you, are failing in understanding God? Okay, you're not using the term ontological properly. I understand the difference between ontology and epistemology, Matt. I think epistemologically is what you're talking about. Ontology is irrelevant. I mean, Jesus, did he have green eyes or brown? That's the makeup and essence of God. I mean, really, no. is the spirit matter, or is it pure and, 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 and fog-like, or what is it? That's ontology. No. Epistemology is knowing who he is in the heart. Am I wrong on these two things? Yes. I don't think so, Matt. You want me to explain? Yeah. 
All right. Epistemology deals with how we know things. That's right. Ontology deals with the essence and nature of something. I just we, said that. I'm sorry, go ahead. God is by essence pure and holy and perfect and loving and kind and eternal and immutable. These are his characteristics, these are issues of his, his make, makeup. Those are not characteristics of the God of Mormonism. Okay, he, Immu he uh, so immutability is a man-made word that you've assigned to him. I'm just saying that I think that we've made a mistake. All of our words are man-made. Yeah, but that one is not biblical. Uh, Matt, I think we've made a mistake. And this is, and this is why I'm stopping on this point, is, is that you're, you said that Mormons ontologically do not have the right God. And no, I'm suggesting that you don't either. You what? think you do, but you don't either. I don't serve a true God? Not completely. Oh, if so you, I serve a false God? No, you don't serve one truly completely, and neither do the LDS. And wait it's minute, just wait, arrogance wait, wait. to think that you think wait. you have all the core issues down. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. Can God be an eternal being and also not be an eternal being as God? You know, we stumble forward through our faith. Okay. We come at different levels. Right. We step in at different times. You know, because your opinion and where you're at and how you see God, I'm not sure it grants you the right to say they, the they, Mormonism does not. I'm not sure we can do that. From what I've seen in the Christian community, from what I've seen, there's a lot of division about okay, what well, everything is. You aren't suggesting the Mormons have a true God now, are you? I'm suggesting that none of us do, including right. you. And it's arrogance to suggest that you do well, and someone else doesn't. So the revelation, the self-revelation of God through the person of Jesus Christ manifested in the Gospels, that when I look and I examine who Jesus is according to the Scriptures and the Epistles, and I know that he's one person with two distinct natures, that in him dwells all the fullness of deity and bodily form, that I know that this is true, that means I don't sufficiently know God? Do you know that this is true? Yes, I know it's true because okay, the Bible Okay, then you're bearing so. testimony to me? The Bible says so. I believe what the Bible I says. I believe the same Bible. I study it you the same way, but I don't see him the same way you do. Do you believe that Jesus has two natures? He's both divine and human? What? Are we, what I believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% spirit. What that okay. means, I don't know. No, God and man. He has two natures, for in him dwells all the fullness of deity and bodily sure. form. Sure. I believe whatever scripture divine. says, Matt. The body is human. Well, you believe that, right? Well, I don't believe in a trinity, though. Okay. Do you believe Jesus has two natures, though? Yeah, sure. Okay. I think, now, I think LDS do, too. has always been God. Okay. So all I'm trying to do is to show you a principle, Matt. I'm trying to, I am trying to show you, too. I'm trying to get to what's called a disjunctive syllogism, an antonymic pair, I'm trying to get you to understand basic logic. Is it true that God has always been God, has always been divine by nature and essence forever for eternity? Is that, is that true? According to the Bible, yes. Okay. Do Mormons, does Mormon theology teach that? I'm not sure. See, that's the problem. Mormon theology allows a lot of divergent thought. I'm not saying they're right. I still think much of what they do is heinous, and I stand against it. But I think we are pretty heinous in thinking that we have him categorized, and we can say who has it right and who doesn't. You don't have it right. I don't have it right. And God has made it that way so that there's a tension and we can learn to love. But let's move forward. We can we're going to come back and go to Trinity when you join us again in the future. We're going to have to do the Trinity because we're going to need to do that. Bob asked, it says God ordains every evil act that has ever been done. That is what, that is what Calvin said. Do you believe That's that? That's what the Bible says. 
If he what? works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, Okay, wait, so do so you agree with that? The Bible says, I God want to know if you agree with that. The counsel of his will. Do, do you, you agree, agree God ordains every evil act yes. that... So Absolutely. when a child is raped, you believe God has ordained that? Do you mean cause? Do you believe God has ordained a child you, being raped? If you want to... Okay, if you want to have a discussion on the theological terms... It's a yes or you, no. You have to understand what the term is meant. You just which, answered a yes by. to the first question. There is no just yes and no. There is. No, I there don't, isn't. Let me I give you one. Yes or no I don't God believe. Don't give it to me. Let me give you one. I don't believe God ordains children being raped. What do you mean by ordained? Do you mean cause? Yeah. Do you mean cause? Yeah. He doesn't cause it. That's not what ordination means. Okay. So he doesn't, he doesn't cause it. What does he do? Or, Allows? To ordain, to ordain means that it's allowed within his sovereign allowed. will to occur. Well, that I would agree with. That's what it means. Okay. So then we're, then we're good. Terms, you should know what they mean first. Then we're good. Honestly, it can't be You've true. taught me something. We're good. That's why you came on the show, to now, teach me where Ephesians I am. Ephesians 111. No, you won God this one. all things after the counsel of his will. You won Do this you one. I believe that if ordain means he allows, I agree. He not, yeah, we'll just yeah. leave it for that for now. Okay. There's a little more to it, but we'll leave it for that and go on. God knows, knew all things, and always has. First John 3.20, he knows all things. He knew before creating any of us who he would elect? Yes. He did not elect them due to anything they did or represent, but of his own free will? That's exactly correct. Those he elected did nothing to choose him either? No, that's not really how it works. They chose him because he enabled them to be able to choose him. They, but his election is not based on their ability to choose him right. or not to choose him. So knowing who he would choose, he created human beings knowing full well he would never choose them, and in creating them, knew they would literally burn forever in a fiery hell. Yes. <laughs> Want me to read you the verses for that? You can't read verses for that, Matt. You can yes, spin can. verses, but you can't read them. God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand yeah. for glory. Romans yeah. 9, 22 and 23. The destruction's a pool of my in that, and it doesn't mean destroy. He ordains everything to his cause, and he's going to bring it all about to his goodwill. Uh, that does not mean destroy in the... Uh, it does in the context. Well, then you believe in annihilation. Then you juxtaposed with glory. Yeah, we, we're going to disagree on that, but you're saying... That's what it says. You're using that passage, and you're understand. I read it too, and I read it differently, but you are saying God literally created most people to physically, literally, eternally burn in utter torment. And this is a God who is love. No, I wouldn't say it that way. How would you say it? Well, I would say that God has ordained all things that shall come to pass. And there are things even we Calvinists don't have a full understanding of, oh which how, is it, how it is that God works all things after the counsel of his will. We know that the majority of people are going to go to hell and suffer. It's very unfortunate. God did too, though. Personally, because as we Christians don't do enough work of preaching and teaching the gospel. I don't know how all the details work, but I do know this. The Bible says that God makes 
everything, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's Proverbs 16.4. That's what it says. I agree with that. You've got, you got the same problem because from your perspective, why would God make people he knows who are going to, of their own free will, choose to reject him and then go to hell? He wouldn't. I don't believe that, Matt. Yeah, because you're a universalist. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm a reconciliationist. It's only through yeah, Christ. Which, which means all people eventually are reconciled to God and eventually go to heaven. That's, well, exactly right. That's what universalism teaches. No, There's universalism variation. teaches all roads lead to heaven. I don't teach that. No, Jesus is the only way. There's different versions of, of Well, the version I'm talking about is Jesus is the only way. Hell does exist. Right. There is punishment. So I'm not a universalist. Let's move forward. That's is it sinful? Is it sinful for me to desire and want all people to be saved? No. It's not sinful for me to do that. That's against God's will. How do you know? Because God doesn't want all to be saved. Where does it say that? Because he's not going to save them all. Well, He's God, sovereign. He gets his will. Can God arrange something contrary to what he commands? I don't know. Yes. Now, if he wants all people to be saved, why would it be that Jesus would speak in parables? He does so in Mark 4, 10 through 12, and he says, he speaks in parables so people will not perceive, that they will not understand, otherwise they'll be forgiven. He specifically says he doesn't want certain ones to be forgiven. Mark 4, 10 through 12. Why would he do that? I brought that up the second show, Mark. I mean, Matt. Uh, I just want to hear your answer. You said it's not sinful for me to want everyone to be saved, but we know that not everyone is, but you gave the answer, so I'm just trying to get the answers. What do you think? It's not oh, sinful, because he says, go ahead and make disciples of all nations. We don't know who God has elected or not. Our job is to not know the mind of God. Our job is to obey him and okay. go out and preach and teach. But you just criticized me for being what you called some kind of universalist, because I believe all are going to be reconciled to God. It's my heart's desire, but you mock it because you believe it. No, that, I don't mock it. Okay, it's good. It's a good thing for you to want all people to be saved. Okay, good. What do you think of water baptism of infants? Just you. Personally, I believe in infant baptism, but not for salvation. I believe it's a covenant sign that replaces circumcision. The covenant of Abraham required infants to be included in that covenant. And that same covenant, which is prophesied in uh, Genesis 12:3, and you all the nations shall be blessed, a circumcision justification issue of Genesis 17. And Paul the Apostle quotes Genesis 12:3 in Galatians 3, 8, and calls that promise uh, the, the uh, gospel. That means that covenant is still in effect. The infants were commanded to be included in that covenant, hence the, the uh, infants are still commanded to be included in the covenant in present day. That's my logic. That's a super fast version of it. But it doesn't have any bearing on salvation. No. In fact, uh, like I don't ever preach it or push it because it's not explicitly taught in Scripture. You don't see any place in the New Testament where infants are, are baptized. All right. You believe in limited atonement. We know that. Could, mm -hmm. could Jesus have suffered for the sins of the whole world? No. Why? Because Second Samuel three fourteen says that God is talking, and He says, "I promise to the house of it, to the house of Eli that the iniquities of Eli's house will, house will not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever." Well, if you're going to use the forever line, you know there's a lot of things in the Old Testament where they use forever, but it doesn't apply. You would agree with that? 
Well, I'm, yeah, and if you want to take what's called the, it's called the semantic domain of a word, it has a lot of meanings in a lot of places. You don't want to commit a fallacy called illegitimate totality transfer, where you take the meaning over here and you move it to a context over here. I'm not smart in enough Second to be a Samuel believer. 14, I renounce my faith. I'm too dumb. <laughs> Ma no. Matt, I'm not smart enough to be a believer. I want to give up now and go bang some chicks and just get completely wasted. Because, you're, I mean, Samuel. you have just totally made it almost impossible for me to understand how to no, read the Bible. This is, I mean, say, what is it happening to everybody who's watching this show? Well, hold on. <laughs> Therefore, God says, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity, the sins of yeah. Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Okay. That's what it says. All right. Every so, translation says that. So that that house burned in in Sheol for a while, and then they came out. Whatever. And Jesus says in Matthew twelve twenty two through thirty two that the uh, sins of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be atoned or uh, will not be forgiven in this well, age. Or you the age know, I have a different answer for that. But anyway, we won't go down that. You just, but essentially, Jesus could not have atoned for the sins of the world. Are you saying? Well, you don't believe. I'm asking you for clarification. So yes or no. No, I okay. already said All it. All right, I just reiterated. I just asked again. Okay. Uh, so, we are commanded to believe 233 times in the New Testament, and they're presented in the Greek in the active voice, Matt. Yes. It means it's a voice. It's a choice to act on our part when it says to believe. We do it. First, why the command in the active voice if God elects us to do it? And secondly, why is belief never in the passive voice, which means just to receive it? Never in the passive. Okay, well, you got several things going on in a long question. Could you just give me one part at a time so I can respond to the one part? Every time it I says believe in the New Testament, every time, 233 times, it's in the active voice. Do it. It's never yeah. in the passive voice, let it be done to you to believe. Okay, why? Of course we believe, because we're supposed to believe. God requires that we believe, because he's the standard, not we. You've got to understand there's a problem in the Christian church. What's happening today is that people are deciding theology based on experience and preference. They don't use God as a standard, they use themselves. So they'll say, look... God, he tells people to believe, but he's also the one who grants that people believe, Philippians 1.29. Why would he tell them to do with that which he has to grant to them to do? The know. reason is simple. God is the standard. That's why in 1 Peter 1.16 he says, be holy, for I am holy. You can't be holy, I can't be holy. We can't be holy. But God requires it of us because it's his obligation to tell us to do that which is right because he's the standard. He's going to tell us to believe because that's the right thing to do. Okay. But then... You have to answer the question. If, he, if it's just up to our choice, then why does it say you cannot come to me unless it's been granted to you from the Father, John 6, 65? Why would it be that if it's just up to us to choose, that it has to be said in Philippians 1, that he grants that we believe? Well, why I, would it be if it's just up to us to choose? Because he calls to all. Why would it be? Unless he called, was, Matt. Unless no, no, he no, called. No, that's not the answer to the question. Oh. If it's up to us to be able to simply believe in God, okay. then why is it he has to grant that we believe? Philippians 1.29.
he, because we, we, are, we are fallen and we seek after our own sin, and he is calling to us to open up our eyes to let us see. So he, he calls and he says, believe in me. If it's up to us, then he doesn't have to grant it to us that we believe. Sure, he's, he's granting it to us in the fact that he calls, that he shows himself Calling in nature. Not granting. Okay, all right. Why is unbelief a sin if God absolutely forbids the majority of people to believe? Why is faith and faithlessness praise, faithfulness? Well, what do you mean he forbids people to believe. What? Where's that in Scripture? What? He doesn't forbid people to believe. He grants that people believe. That he forbids it by not granting it to them. Uh, no, no, no. He does not forbid people to believe. He commands that they believe. We do not know why he only grants belief to certain people. That's what he says. In fact, Acts 13, 48 says, for as many as had been appointed to eternal life, yeah. believed. That's passive. I they believed because they were appointed to eternal life. I agree. That's I, look at Matt. There's no doubt there are passages that support uh, many of the some of the points you make, but there are passages on the other hand that do not. But it, for instance, faithfulness and faith is praised, but faithlessness is condemned. And yet you're saying that it is God who grants us the ability. Makes That's no sense. Correct. Said, but it I, says he grants us the ability. He grants that we believe, Philippians 129. They said to Jesus in John 6, You don't make sense, though, Matt. You're quoting Scripture, but it doesn't make sense. That's so what, God's Word doesn't make sense? No. Well, the way you're or presenting it to it, that doesn't. It's, maybe it's man's thinking. Look, if we have the doctrine of total depravity, that we cannot receive spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2.14, we're slaves of sin, Romans we 6. We don't have the doctrine of total depravity. We went through that. We have the doctrine if, of fallen nature, sure. Yeah, with total, this means in all areas we're touched by sin. If that's the case, and we're not able to come to God on our own, then we're going to find verses where it says He grants that we believe. He grants us repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25. Cause us to be born again, not by our own will, John 1.13, etc. These verses are here. Do you believe that the average Christian can understand this stuff, Matt? Yes. Okay. If they want to study. Okay. All right. Uh, don't, listen. don't make the mistake of thinking the Bible is just, you know, that deep, a half inch deep, and if you wad, uh, wait through Come it and up. get your ankles slightly wet that you've gotten into the depth of the Word of God. Yeah. There's stuff in here that is incredibly deep, and I've been discovering things, others have been discovering things for years. It's deep. Yeah, it's you know, but what about... They what just about, want to have a mamby-pamby little theology session, and they don't want to think very deeply. What about being like a child and childlike? Be like a child in faith with God. Just trust Him. But why would Paul say things like predestination and election? Why would he say such things such as that uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, he says that he died for all, therefore all died. And when you study the phrase all died, it can only mean the Christians. You have to, there's, there's more to stuff that's going on than just the simple things in every verse. Matt, I there's know that. complicated things, too. I realize that. My simple question was, I study the Bible, too. I try. But my question was, do you think the common Christian is going to be able to delve into this? And if they yeah. can't, you think they can and they can get all that? I, okay. That's just the, study. You that's don't have the, to arrive study. at Calvinism. Okay. But you know what? There are deeper things in the Word of God. I, I agree with you to that. Study very hard. All right, listen, final thing, and then you can comment on it. Steve is a loyal family man. He loves his children, his country, and wife. He's honest in his job, contributes to the community. Here we go. God knows Steve will not be elected before creating him. Steve is hated 
by God before, during, and after he is born by the God who created him, Steve is actually predestined to go to hell forever before he is born. Steve cannot repent or change course in his life because God has not, nor will he elect him. Steve cannot believe in God because God will not elect him to believe. Steve will never be loved by God. Steve will never be known by God. Steve was not included in Jesus' loving offering for sin and is therefore, he is even out of further reach from God. So the question, how does a just loving God punish Steve forever in a lake of fire? I'll answer the question by reading scripture. So then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. This is Romans 9, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? will it that's the response from God's Word okay. so I would just say what you have to do is believe what God's Word says you can apply all kinds of emotional rhetoric that you want and you can say well this isn't fair that's not fair you know what the Word of God says it basically says this shut up and sit down you're not God read Romans 9 16 through 21 you believe what it says there and if you don't like it go to the store get an exacto knife cut that portion of scripture out and deny what god's word says and just instead place your own sentimentality and follow the blonde haired blue eyed caucasian surfer jesus dressed in a woman's nightgown who will coddle you and tell you what you want to hear and make you feel better about yourself and about god okay. or you can submit to the word of god Read all right and, and matt Matt, that rhetoric really inspires a lot of people toward vim and vigor toward your position. But Jesus also said that if a man knows how to give good gifts, being evil, imagine how your heavenly father. And John says that God is love. And love is defined in 1 Corinthians 13 as never failing, never, ever giving up, long-suffering, patient, temperate, all these beautiful gifts of God. He's given all of us horrible people down here who he hasn't touched a beautiful place to live. He's blessed us with children that we in our hearts, we get connected to and we serve and we, we expect to be with them after this life only to find that them and us are gonna be burning in hell forever and ever by this God that you just preached so zealously, Matt. You have your system down. You have your passages down, but there's plenty of others that speak the opposite way, and that's the point of us doing this show. You do well, not you know have to believe the way uh, Calvinism presents the gospel, folks. You don't have to You do not, and it is point. not incumbent upon your salvation. No, it's not. You can be an Arminianist. You can believe and read the Bible in a different way and be just as right as the Calvinist. I so, would not agree with that. Stephen. I know you wouldn't because you believe you're right, but we have no, a lot of learning to do. Possible. We have a lot of stuff we don't understand. So don't let this in the name of reaching to Mormon people, don't let this Calvinism sway come in here and make you believe that if you leave Mormonism, you gotta be a Calvinist, which is what they wanna make you believe. Well, you just told me that yours no. is the right way, essentially. It's not. No, 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 I didn't say both could be correct in the same level in the same way. You don't have to be not a Calvinist. Not in the same level in the same way. I, I, I'm sorry, but I think the faith of a child, of a, of a person who can't even read, who looks to the heavens and loves God and knows nothing about this stuff, is probably a better Christian than you and I combined, brother. 
So I think we can either step know. off the stuff and just try to get real with how it really works in people's lives. Hold on, let me tell you something. Yeah. This is the gospel, that all who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, God in flesh, the monotheistic God, not the God of Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Islam, but in the Christian God only. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and only Him, you trust in Him, not by your faith and your works, not by your faith and your sincerity, but by the blood of Christ shed on the cross. Only you put your faith in Him, then you'll be justified before God. That is the gospel message. I was asked, I and we talked about the particulars of how I was asked, to come on and talk about the five points of Calvinism. I've given a ton of scripture for each thing. I've tried to demonstrate it's in scripture. You guys don't want to believe it? That's okay with me. That's okay. I don't have any problem with people not being Calvinists. I have a problem with you denying that the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, that two natures of Christ, his physical death, his physical resurrection on the cross, the atonement, and the imputation of our sins to him, and the imputation of his righteousness to us, all obtained by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the essential of the Christian faith. Well, I have a problem with you believing in the Trinity. So, you know, and I believe no, all those other time. things, Matt. So we have next problems time. with each other's beliefs. Let's talk We're brothers in Christ. Time. We don't need to talk more. We need to love more. Knowledge <laughs> puffs up. We need to set this stuff down, down. And we need to just really try to start set, stepping back and loving more rather than knowing more. And I no, really I think, think that's think the we call. Should, we should love God and love our neighbors. That's right. But it's not wrong to know. And I wouldn't contrast one over another. I'd say God wants us to do both. I and would. we can only know God truthfully in order to love him truthfully and to know him in, in response. It's like a circle. Yeah. I would agree. We agree on many, many points, my brother. I really appreciate the time that you've taken, all the mm -hmm. scripture you've brought. You speak so much truth. You've enlightened us. Uh, we obviously disagree on some things, but that's okay. I'm just trying to continue. In fact, in a few weeks, I'm, we're going to try to get a guy out here who's an expert on preterism, and I think uh, it's going to be very enjoyable to see that view come out uh, and be shed. So keep going with us. Give many thanks to Matt Slick. Check him out at CARM. He has tons of information on his website that is beneficial to the body. Uh, just ignore the Calvinistic stuff. Love you, brother. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter. We'll see you. God bless. <laughs> I gave him a good plug at the end, didn't I? All right. <laughs>